Last time we, we spoke, we talked about our best is yet to come. And so what I want to do this week is take a bit of a wander through and I'm going to kind of hopefully get there as we walk through this in the next 30 minutes. But looking at our part in the best that is yet to come. In other words, we sang the song before that we want more of you, God, don't we? And so there's, a, there's another side of that where, where God actually wants more of us. And where, as, as Dino said before, we abandon ourselves to him, to the Spirit of God to fill us and to, and to make us into people we haven't been before. And so this morning, I, I just trust as we kind of journey through this, we'll, we'll, we'll get there in the end and um, just bear with me as we kind of work through it. We talked about the, the, the kind of the mess the world is in, and it doesn't take a lot for us to see how, how much tragedy and pain and suffering and evil there is in the world today. I went on Al Jazeera this morning. How many of you look at that web, that site? And, you know, if, if, you want, if you want a bad news day, go to Al Jazeera. There's not much on there that's any good. And you, this, this, the, this morning's news is no worse than any of the others. There's stuff like... All the common stuff of the conflict and people displaced because of war and famine and flood and everything else and, and uh, the border clashes and the skirmishes going on. And then, of course, there's all the stuff about COVID um, at the moment and how every country is struggling with that. And then there was also a story about this asteroid that's two metres in diameter that is, um, uh, I think it's kind of planning or the, the timetable for it to hit Earth, if it does, very slim chance, is the day before the American election. <laughs> so you want to close the door on that one, you don't want that one coming inside, you have to, I mean, the, the, the asteroid, not the American election, you know, you don't want that either. But, so we talked about the, 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 um, the chaos and the disorder at the moment that, that we face on, on our planet. And there's real unease and, and anxiety at the moment with, with many different people, not just maybe some folk here, but in our wider community. Folk um, are, are really living in despair and, and fearful of the future. Have you noticed that with, with people that you've talked to? There's, a, there's kind of a real fear of what's going to happen. And we need a hope that goes beyond the circumstances that we face right now. And we talked about Hebrews 12, that our hope is an anchor. And it goes beyond the rough sea and the turmoil of, of what we're facing at the moment into something that's really solid. And the problem with a lot of people, of course, is that their, their, their anchor's grip at the moment is, is very, very tenuous. And there's not a lot that they're, that they're holding on to. During the last uh, six or eight months, the drama that we've had is COVID. Um, in this country, there's been a, a word or a phrase that I've heard a few times that has kind of caught my interest, and it's the word reset. Have you heard that? Yeah. And the, the, there's a, a kind of a, a desire for, for life to be reset. Now, we don't know how, where the resets, how far the reset is back. Is it just pre-COVID so that uh, the hospitality and tourism industry can once again flourish, or is it um, international travel or the freedom to move internationally, that sort of stuff? How far do we reset back? Because if you reset back a long way, there wasn't much international travel. 
In fact, if you reset 150 years, there wasn't much tourism. It was, um, it was set aside for the elite and for the, the aristocratic. So when you talk reset, how far do we reset? For many people, for many people, the capacity to hope is based on one of two things. Firstly, on what we remember or what we've experienced, the reset, okay? In other words, we say, oh, gee, it was good then. What about the, what about the days of long ago? What about the good old days? Haven't you heard that? What about, I had someone say to me the other day, oh, gee, life was just so good in the 70s, you know? In the 60s and 70s, we're great. I mean, young people, you can't remember the 60s and 70s. If you want to sit your folks down tonight and say, Mum, Dad, tell us about the 60s and 70s. They'll rush off to the wardrobe, Dad will get his bell bottoms, Mum will get his miniskirt, they'll come and tell you about the 70s. But we, we, we wish for a time, our hope can be tied up in what we've experienced in the past or what we remember, the reset. Hope can also be tied up, our capacity to hope can be tied up for what we dream of the future. In other words, if only I could win lotto, the extra money that I would have in my pocket would extract me from the life that's boring, that's kind of going nowhere, and give me the ability to live life like I see people living in the magazines I read. You know? So we hope for the, our hope is tied up in the past, what we remember, or what we dream. So without the God of history, the, the, the Alpha and the Omega, the, the, the God who always has been and who always will be, without God and our paradigm, our hope is only ever tied up in what we remember or in what we dream. Now, here's the difference. With God, our hope is tied up in what he promised. Okay? With God, hope is wrapped up in a promise. And that's why we talked last time, and um, Kerry mentioned it last week as well, we, we looked at that verse in Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus talks about the, the um, renewal of all things. And the, the Greek word for that is palingenesia. It's a two-part word, palin meaning again, second time, or another time. Genesis is from where we get the word Genesis, a new beginning. And so it's a beginning for the second time, or Genesis again. And so our hope is tied up in a promise, a promise that one day there will be the purity, there will be the splendor, there will be the richness and wholeness, there will be the completeness, free of... Uh, the, the taint and the spoil and the dirt and the filth and the sin we have at the moment, there will be Genesis again. And that is the promise. So as we walk through this morning, I want us to see what part we play in the bringing about of that promise. And that surely is the reset to end all resets, going back that far. And we have this hope because of the one who broke the power of death and evil and sin. And death and evil does not have the final say in this world. And death and pain and suffering and evil is not how this world is going to end. It doesn't have the final say in human history and in your life and in my life. 
Perhaps it's our evangelical background, but I wonder at sometimes if we have limited Easter to be about Jesus and me. In other words, Jesus rose from the dead, which if I believe in him and accept him and all the kind of evangelical phrases that we can use to become a Christian that we say, if we, if we do that, we then are, we, we live a new life as well. We experience this renewal of all things. But the apostles in the New Testament believed that when Jesus rose from the dead, when he walked out of the tomb, it wasn't just Jesus, it was also you and I, but then again it was all of creation as well. All of creation walked out of the tomb. And that's why we have in, in Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 22, which says that all of creation is groaning. In fact, one of the ver- a couple of verses say all of creation is on tiptoe, waiting for this time to arrive when the sons of men will be revealed and we will understand what the renewal of all things, the Pelagonicea, is really like. So all things made new. And all creation is waiting eagerly for that. I want us to um, look at a passage in Revelation. It's not on the um, not on the screen, so I'm going to read it to you. Pay to turn the Bible up the right way, Trevor. The Holy Spirit is here, but he's he's not going to help me read upside down. Right. Now, if you're like me, there are two, bi- uh, two, verse, or two, two books in the Bible that I sometimes struggle with in terms of they provide or promote too many questions. One is the book of Genesis where it doesn't seem to have enough information. There's not enough detail. You know, the, what, about, what about the issue of carbon dating in the so-called time or the, or the age of our world? How does that relate to when it says that Genesis, the creation story? What about dinosaurs? It doesn't mention that sort of stuff. And what about in chapter 5 where, um, chapter five where Cain takes a wife? Well, where did his wife come from? So you, I have questions about Genesis. I also have questions about Revelation. Not because there's not enough information, but because there's too much. There's all this imagery and visions and, you know, what, what does it mean? And, um, and it's, it's some of it's off-the-wall stuff when you read it and you kind of, and there, there's conspiracy theories abound, as we know. I mean, you can take a world leader, find his birth date, multiply it by his <laughs> cell phone number, <laughs> divide it by the number of children he's got, and you end up with 666. And bingo, he's the, he's the Antichrist. Hey? And we've all heard those stories, you know. So, so Revelation is a, is a bit of a challenge to me as well. But I wanted to look at, a, look at it this morning. Because with both, both Genesis and Revelation, and of course, is, um, is Andre here this morning? Oh, Andre, I wish you weren't listening to this. <laughs> A theologian in our midst. <laughs> all right. But with Genesis and Revelation and all the books in between, we need to understand the culture in which they were written and who they were written to, the context of the word. Now, this, the Bible is written, to, it is the word of God to us. 
but we weren't the, the primary or the initial recipients of God's word. And so it's important for us to understand or do what we can to understand the context and the culture of God's word. Now, I've got a clip or a photo coming up very shortly. Okay, can you see that? It's a picture of a politician, Simon Bridges, standing on what looks to be the beehive, and it's obviously making a statement about climate change. Declaring a climate emergency is nothing more than a political stunt. Show me the evidence. And there's a bird that looks like a penguin sitting on the top. Now, you and I understand that. But if that was shown to the people of Mesopotamia uh, two and a half thousand years ago, they would not have the faintest idea of what that was. It's not their context. It's not their culture. In other words, they might, they might um, is that the Tower of Babel? And they, well, they might say, oh, there's water there. Maybe that was about Noah and the ark, you know. Uh, but what's that funny animal with its flippers out and its short legs? And, you know, they've got no idea what a penguin is like. Understand, we need to understand the culture just as our culture today would be as foreign to those folk who the Bible was written to and, and those who wrote it between you know, 2,000 and 4,000 years ago. All right, so let's read um, just a passage from Revelation 21. And remembering this is a vision that John had on the Isle of island of Patmos and it's as if he's looking down on and seeing all this stuff happening beneath him and he's writing these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Now that's our first problem, no longer any sea because once again we need to understand the culture and the context of this because we think, um, is, is Tammy here this morning? John, John Pringle? Okay, John would, John would think, no sea, no surfing, wouldn't he? And I'm thinking, oh, no fishing. Why do I want to go there? You know, but, but this is an, under, an example of needing to understand the context of which this is written. Because for the Israelites, the sea represented the chaos and the instability and the disorder of the world. So they, they weren't a seafaring people. The Israelites were, were, they were familiar with the lake, um, boating and fishing on Lake Galilee, etc. But they weren't a seafaring people. The Phoenicians and the Egyptians were. So f- for them to see a world without sea meant that it was a world without chaos and disorder and instability. In other words, they were seeing a safe and secure world. Understand that? Right, we move on. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. You notice here he doesn't say, I am making all new things. He says, I am making all 
things new. In other words, what has been distorted, what has been disrupted, what has been disturbed and tainted and polluted and soiled and dirtied, I'm making them new again. Isn't that good? Genesis again. So let's go back to Genesis. I want to go back to Genesis for a moment. We're skipping around a bit because I believe in the first couple of chapters in the Bible there's a real an indication or a clue, a hint of how we can participate with God in this making all things new. Okay? So Genesis 1. I don't hear any rustling of pages. Do we, do we not have Bibles these days? It's all on the phone, is it, or on the, the iPad? Can you, are you reading it with me? Okay, what page? Page number three. Page. <laughs> My Bible doesn't have pages. <clears throat> oh, it's upside down, sorry. Um, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, let us... There are two things, just on Genesis again, is just looking at the context. Um, Genesis doesn't have to contain every detail to be true. Okay? Genesis is not, is not a, a, a science book. Uh, and it was, wasn't written, wasn't written firsthand. There wasn't someone leaning against a tree or sitting on a stone taking notes of when God created Adam. Okay? This was, Genesis was probably written, I don't know, f- between 1,500 or 2,500 years before what we understand the date of Genesis or creation to be. So it's, the story was passed down through, through family, through generations, and the Spirit of God obviously spoke to the writer, who we assume is Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis. But sometime after, thousands of years after the story itself. The second... so. Genesis, not a science book, it doesn't tell us the how of creation, but it does tell us the why, all right? The why of creation. More importantly, as I said before, with the beehive photo and Simon Bridges, we need to look at Genesis through the eyes of the culture in which it was written. Take our 20th century glasses off and try and look at it through the eyes of the Mesopotamia, world of 1500 BC or so. So 26 and 27 of chapter 1 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. In fact, the message says, so they can be responsible for the fish of the sea, etc., etc. Now, last time we spoke, we talked about the mandate we have to have dominion and how dominion is not control or to dominate, but it's to care for, it's to steward, it's to look after, it's to nurture the world that God has placed us in. Now, over in chapter 2, in verse 7, there's this other account where it, where it says these words, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground 
and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, I'm just going to digress a wee bit here, but for me, this is the first, I think the first clue of a loving God. Because when God created the trees and the mountains and everything else that he did to the animals, he spoke them into life. But when he created man, he took the dust in his hand and he formed it, made it with his hand, his hands, and then he breathed into it the breath of life. Is that a picture of a loving God or not? I think it is. You know. Anyway, it goes on here. Sorry, that was a digression. But we're created in his, limit, in, in his image and in his likeness. Now, I don't know if you have, as a, as a youngster, I've often, you know, struggled with this, this word, how we created like God, you know. I mean, are we created in his image? Is, is, it, is God like us? Does God look like us? If so, which, which one of us does he look like? You know, does he look like Peter Muller because he's got a beard? Does he look like Ben Polson because he's old and happy? Or maybe, maybe your idea of God is that, you know, when you're naughty, he reprimands you. In that case, God might look like Lee Neverson, you know. <laughs> but, who, but, but, is, but what is this about being made in his likeness and his image? Okay, let's look at that for a minute. The only other time in the Bible when these two words are used together is in Genesis chapter 5, and it's the story or the note taken of Adam's natural family lineage. And it says, Adam, Seth, Seth was to Adam in his image and his likeness. Now, I reckon it's really powerful that the only other time when those two words are used together is at the start of the human family lineage. And those are the same words that are used for God creating man. What does that tell us about sonship, about really our identity and who we are as sons and daughters of the living God? Seth was to Adam what we are, the seeds of God, his creation. Isn't that good? Yeah. The, other, the other thought is this. In Hebrew, the word for image is tesilim, which is T-S-E-L-E-M. Now, we have to take our 20th century glasses off for this as well because tesselum means statue. In other words, we were created as statues, as images. Now, not statues that we are familiar with. Like if you go through Openaki, you'll see a, a statue of Peter Snell. You know? If you go, you know, there's, plate, there's George Wakefield and there's Captain Cook and other statues. But in Mesopotamia and in the Middle East at this time, kings or rulers would carve a wooden statue or a stone statue and place it in parts of their kingdom where they could not be physically present to remind people of their sovereignty. And so what this verse is saying is that man was made in God's image, carved, his, his life breathed into him to be placed in areas of his kingdom, of his world, where he was not physically present. Isn't that a good picture? You know, that's what, that's what we have been called to do and to live. 
image and I two of the questions that we that people will often ask is about our identity and our purpose both tied up likeness as a son as a son and image as to be a representation of an authentic reflection of the living God in the world that he has placed us in and just as uh, just as Adam with with without the the trappings or the the problem of the fall would have been called to have taken the image of God beyond the garden and to extend his realm and his rule into places that that were outside of his initial kingdom, we have been called to do that as well. Jesus picked up on this, I believe, and when when he um, when he called people to follow him, and I was it Don McLean talked about this a couple of weeks ago, didn't he? When he talked about following in terms of, uh, he used the illustration of Zacchaeus and Matthew as tax collectors being called to follow Jesus. Jesus used the word follow, but he also used the word disciple. And disciple is to learn, but it's, it's more than just to learn, it's to, be, it's to imitate, it's to become like. And the, the become like is a word that we would use often today as the word apprentice. It's to learn just like the teacher learns, to learn exactly so that you can become like. And to follow doesn't mean just that we, we amble behind and we, we kind of follow because we think it's a good thing. It's we follow because we are becoming like and it's becoming into the image of the one we are following. And it means not just what we observe and what we look at, it means how our life has changed. And when, when Peter and Andrew were called as fishermen and later when James and John were called, they left their nets and their boats on the side of the lake and they followed. And Jesus said, you've got to become like me, fishers of men. It's about becoming. And so here the image, I think, uh, or the image of an image or a statue is used by Jesus as well. And it's not just that we observe, it's not just that we learn, it's not just that we look at, but we... As Dino says before, we abandon ourselves to what God has for us and all he has called us to. And it's not just wanting more of God, it's God wanting more of me. Not just what I observe, not just what I learn, not just what I know about, but it's what I give my life to. You know, I have 300 books or so in a library at home. And as I was looking at them the other day, some of the books that I bought 30 or 40 years ago don't mean a lot now. And most of the books that I have, most of them would tell me how to be, would, you know, I read and how to be a better father and a better husband. And I need to read those, dear, I know. Um, <laughs> but but, but how, to, how to be more courageous, how to, how to be a better church person, how to be better at what I do. But there is nothing like being absorbed and immersed in, in the history of what God wants to call me into. It's not just history, it's his story. And God has asked us to participate in his story, to be part of it, to participate and to make, and so that we become images in the world that he has placed us in. I'm going to show you a clip. Uh, have we got that ready there? And um, we could do that. Edmund, it looks like the water's actually moving. 
What rubbish, see? That's what happens when you read all those fanciful novels and fairy tales of yours. Edmund, the painting! You see, it's easy for us to, to look at the picture on the wall and we observe it, we know all about it, the intricacies of it, and we can understand it. Or perhaps we, we get lost with all the other pictures on the wall and we can, uh, we can get attracted by other, you know, seemingly attractive pictures and we miss the beauty of the real picture. Or perhaps we can, we get close enough to it, but we see that there's risk involved and we stand off a bit. And yet God wants to immerse us in his story, in his picture. It's not good enough just to know all about it. It's not good enough just to observe it and to think that we are involved. God wants us to be immersed, to abandon ourselves and to be part of the story and to become his image in the place he's called us to be. The paradox, I think the real paradox of the gospel is that we can only be secure, and let's face it, our world is crying out for security. The people that you talk to, they want hope, they want security, they want to know. They want to know that their future is safe. The paradox of the gospel is that you can only be secure when you let go. You can only be secure when you immerse yourself in another world, in a world that's foreign to you, a world that's foreign to our human nature, but we give ourselves to it, knowing that the God of promise has our identity and our purpose mapped out. And it's only when you immerse yourself in another world, when you let go, when you let go and you let God do it, it's only then that you understand what real safety is like. It's only then you can say like Romans 8 and say that all things work together for good. You can say that no matter what the news is, the death of a child, uh, uh, the diagnosis of an incurable disease, the, the loss of a job, whatever bad news, you can say that, but only when you've let go, only when you've become immersed in the story, abandon yourself and allow him to... To, to fill you the more of God that you want and the more of God that you've given him. Understand? Okay. Romans 8 again. The end of it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Death can't. Hell itself can't. All the problems of life cannot separate us from the love of God. So God's call upon us is that he as he is at work in history, ultimately to make all things new, the palingenesia. He wants us to participate with him, to be his images and his statues and the place that he's called us to be, to make a difference, to be an authentic reflection 
of his life, no matter where you are, at work, in your home, at school, your place, your, your, your kindy with your other, other mums, at, um, at high school, at uni, wherever it is, to be the statue, the image of God, an authentic replication. And you need to immerse yourself in him, be filled with the Spirit, in order to experience all that he has for you and to know his safekeeping and his security that he promises. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are the mighty God. And Lord, we, we've read scripture, we've, we've, we've seen right from the beginning and how you've, nothing that happens now is a mistake. Lord, you know it all. You've got this, you've got this really sorted out right from the beginning of time. You destined that we would have a relationship with you through what Jesus has done. You destined that we were to be workers with you, partners with you, and bringing change to a world. You destined that we were to be standing and sitting here today and just uh, worshipping you and, and having our lives challenged about what you want us to do with our future. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just speak to us now about what we need to do, about the immersion that we need to take to transport us into another world, a world where you are king, where you are lord, where you are sovereign where we have the ability to, to know the filling of your spirit that will enable us to be authentic replications of you in the place that you have put us in. In Jesus' name. Amen.